Not the safest activity. At least you can ask your insurance agent that and they'll tell you. But kids love it. A lot of fun. And, and, you know, we have safety nets to keep the kids safe while they do it. Kids have birthday parties. Everybody enjoys it. And truly, if, if one spring breaks, it's not a big deal. You know, I, I, I overlook it. I let them keep bouncing. Two springs break. That's unfortunate, but we can let it go. Three break, and I start to wonder, what's going to happen? Will one kid with a mighty jump bring the whole thing crashing down? Will that 14-foot diameter ring become a ring of death and destruction and broken bones and tears? Don't want that to happen. Then you got to do something about it. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 15? Need a Bible? There's one in front of you. I'm on page 801 if you're using a Bible from the chair. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He didn't raise them if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who are also, also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's true. If a spring gets bent out or gets rusty on our trampoline, I get nervous. But if one goes, I've got like 50 more or so, right? And most of them are going to hold that trampoline up and my kids are going to keep bouncing. But I've noticed something. When one breaks, another one will break. If one if one uh, rips out the, the stitching from the trampoline mat, another one will rip out. This happened to me last year. And again, when one ripped out, I didn't think too much of it. Just keep bouncing. Just avoid that corner, kids, and you won't break your leg. It'll be all right. I'm a good dad. And uh, keep bouncing. I know you all want to send your kids to my house for bouncing. Tramp, tramp. So, um... But I noticed that when the first one rips away and the stitching comes loose and the ring comes off, that's a problem. But the next one to go will not be on the opposite side of the trampoline. The next one to rip away will be where? Right next to it. And now I've got a bigger problem because now I'm starting to get a hole. Now my kids can actually fit through it. 
You know, they can fit through it. And the next one to go will be right next to it. And before you know it, I've got four or five, and it's useless. We can't bounce anymore. Yes, I'll take responsibility and tell my kids to get off the trampoline. We'll get there, you know. (laughs) We'll get them off there. And the resurrection is like that. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is this. If the resurrection is fake, if dead people don't rise from the dead, if that's not what God does, if that falls apart, everything else falls apart. I mean, when I read 1 Corinthians 15, I think, Paul, you are ruthless. I mean, if they come up with a body for Jesus, the whole movement is over. You've staked everything on the reality that the tomb is empty, the body was raised, people saw him. You've staked everything on that. And it's like a domino effect. It's like, it's like totaling your car, total loss. Once that spring comes loose, they all come loose. And it's done. I want to show you just briefly what's at stake if the springs all come loose. If God is not a resurrecting God, this is the implication of that. If Jesus didn't rise, this is what it means for our faith. Number one, if Jesus has not been raised, then you and I, and this is, I'm, I'm, there's, I mean, there's seven things from the text, okay? I want to be clear. I'm not making this up. This is in the text in front of you. It, it, he says in verse 13, if the dead have not been raised, then Jesus has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, what that means for you and me is we are worshiping a dead guy, Okay? You and I are singing to a dead guy. And as much as I love dead people and dead celebrities and, 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 and dead famous people, I'm not going to hold a big meeting every Sunday where we sing the praises of Abraham Lincoln, who kept the union together. You know? Not going to do it. I mean, and, 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 you, and you see how people mourn the loss of celebrities. You know, we, we lost, uh, you know... Uh, Minneapolis lost a famous musician, Prince, right? You know, and they're lighting up the whole town purple, right? And people are posting on Facebook. People I know are posting. Believers are posting. This is a huge loss. And that's fine. But, but you work through that and, and, and you get over the loss of a celebrity. Maybe you still listen to their music. But you kind of get through it. But you don't gather every Sunday and worship a dead guy. And if we are worshiping a dead guy, think about how foolish that makes us look because he can't hear us. Jesus, I love you. You've said to nobody in particular. Nobody's hearing. Nobody's responding. It means nothing. I think he starts with a big one at the beginning here. I don't want to be the guy worshiping a dead man. If if the resurrection is not true, then in verse 14... Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. We'll take each of these in turn. Our preaching is useless. Now, by preaching, he doesn't mean exactly like what I'm doing right now. Okay? He doesn't mean that. He, what, he, what he means is that the, the Greek word behind preaching emphasizes the message. The message we're preaching is useless. So number two is, if, if there is no resurrection, then our salvation message is destroyed. It's destroyed. We've got no good news for people. 
there's no hope. We'll get to the hope thing later. But we've got nothing to say to people that's a good word if there is no resurrection. And maybe that's okay with some of us because it's uncomfortable sharing that, that message anyway, right? Maybe we'd be okay with that. But the salvation message is destroyed. And then secondly, he says, your faith is also useless. It's in vain. If there is no resurrection, then that means your faith and my faith is nothing more than wishful thinking. I mean, think about that. And don't get me wrong, some people treat faith like that already, right? Like faith is, for some people, wishful thinking. It's, it's just, it, it's positive thinking. It's feeling good about yourself. And God loves me. And if I feel like God loves me, then I can believe a book of fairy tales. They don't have to be true because they just make me feel better about myself. But I don't need the Bible to feel better about myself, and the Bible actually doesn't make me feel better about myself when I see my sin. You just have to read the right parts to feel good about yourself, I suppose. If, I, if I'm into wishful thinking, if I'm into moralism and just feeling good about myself, I can watch any random Disney movie and come out with the same thing. All right? And, and they don't have to be real stories. They can be fairy tales with a good moral and I can feel good about that as I walk out. Our faith is just wishful thinking. It, it's not. It's not effective. You know what I mean? You know what I mean by. You know, it doesn't, I'll, I'll get to that. We'll get there. Uh, number four. Uh, verse fifteen. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Jesus from the dead. So number four is this. If there is no resurrection, then the apostles are liars and you are propagating the lie. Okay? And they haven't just lied about any little thing. They've lied about God. Now think about the Jewish context of this. If you're a Jewish person, you're, you're, you're breaking one of the Ten Commandments and you're doing it about God. I mean, you're basically blaspheming God if, the res- if God's not a resurrecting God, and you say that he is. C- can you see it? It's a dark uh, atmosphere. The lights are, are dim. It's, and people are drinking and sitting around. In comes Matthew. In comes Mark. In comes Luke. And in comes John. And they're all there at a bar. This is not an April Fool's joke, by the way. Um, and they're all at the bar. And they say, let's write a story. Let's write a story about the guy they crucified a couple months back. And let's make him God. It'll be great. People will believe it. They'll buy it. And the apostles say, we're in too. We'll spread that lie. I mean, I just want you to consider the implications here. If there is no resurrection, then we've got a bunch of people who say they are godly, following Christ, following the living God, and they're actually either delusional or they're misleading everybody. And that is horrible. It's horrible. And to Paul's point, I think he uses the word, we are found to be. We are found to be. The idea of being found out, you know, you're caught. You got your hand in the cookie jar, you know. You're found out. That's the why he uses the word found. Like, we're caught. We're false witnesses. Every one of us. If there is no resurrection, we've concocted a great story. And so some people actually do say that in our culture, that they all got together and they made up a story and they all stuck to the story. 
Even when they died, they stuck to the script. You will read that today. And when I read that, I think to myself, yes, that's a natural implication of no resurrection. Paul already said it. Paul predicted that 2,000 years later, people would say they made it up. And, and they said that even back then. Apostles are bad guys if there's no resurrection. Where are we at? Number five. If the dead are not raised, verse 16, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is what number five means. Still in your sins. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then that means sin has won. It has mastered you. It has conquered you. It has overpowered you. And, maybe even worse, it's overpowered Jesus. Okay? What if Jesus... I, I feel like I could do a whole sermon on this. One, one, one Easter, I probably will. If Jesus just died and that was it, what would that say about the crucifixion? And one thing that we have to agree on, I think that it would say that sin is stronger than Christ. That death held him down. And that he didn't actually die for sins. Sin mastered him. Or maybe even worse, if there's no resurrection, it could be God saying that Jesus was not sinless. He deserved to die, and God's not going to raise him up because he deserved to be there. You know, these are, these, these are terrible things to think. And yet... If there's no resurrection, there's no reason for us to think that we have any hope against our sin. You have no power over sin if Jesus doesn't have power over sin. How is he going to help you with temptation if he can't beat sin and death? What help is that? So you may as well keep doing what you're doing because, okay, you're not going to stop. If there is no resurrection... And those who have fallen asleep, this is verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If for only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's his last two. Number six. If there is no resurrection, then there's no hope beyond the grave. There's just nothing. And if there's nothing, he'll say in a few verses, you might as well eat and drink, for tomorrow you may die. Live how you want. You only live once. I mean, th this, is, this is how young people are looking at life often. And they wear t-shirts proclaiming it. If this life is all I have, then you better enjoy it. Because there's no hope beyond the grave. The dead are truly lost to us. Number seven. And then he comes up with the ruthless um, final word here. Then we're the most pitiful people ever. Christians are the most pitiful people ever if there is no resurrection. Now, I get that he's kind of gone through this whole, whole list of things and they all kind of lead into the other. Um, a word on the pitiful people. You ever heard of Pascal's Wager? Am I saying his name right? Pascal's Wager? I bet you have if you haven't heard of that French philosopher. His wager goes something like this. I bet it's influenced me if you don't know where it came from. He said 
I think he wrote this down and it was published after his death. Um, he said, if you have a choice between believing in God or Christianity or not believing, it'd be better to believe in God. Because, this is the wager, if you're wrong, at least you will have lived a good life. You know, and you just had this faith. But if you're right, if you're right about it, well, then that means you die and you go to heaven, and, and yes, you believe correctly. It's a good wager is what Pascal says. And I say that's stupid. I'm not as smart as Pascal. I'm not, not saying that. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm saying the Bible, I'm saying the Apostle Paul says that's ridiculous. I mean, hear him out. Maybe you've thought this. Well, if I believe in Christ, at least I have my fire insurance. At least, I, you know, at least I'm ready in case I die. And I can still do what I want to do in this life, but I, I got my faith there too. You know, It's a good gamble. I got nothing to lose. And why is that so foolish? Well, because Jesus said, if he wants to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. Enjoy your cross, people. It's a good gamble, you know. It's fun carrying the cross. It's fun denying yourself. That's a great thing. No, no. It, it, the Christian life is about sacrifice. It's not about you. Um, Paul says we are pitiful people if we've given everything to follow Christ. Now, I know for us, we think well, we don't have to give very much. And maybe that's why Pascal's wager makes sense to us. It doesn't feel like we have to give much. What's the cost of discipleship? Jesus said, yeah, you might have to leave houses. You might have to leave your parents, your family behind. There, there is a cost to following me. He said, people will hate you because of me, is what Jesus said. That's ah, a good gamble, though. You know, life's okay with it. I, I think the only way Pascal's wager makes sense is if we don't really take Christ seriously and really follow him sacrificially. We are the most pitiful people. And so this is what I know. As I look at this whole thing, these seven reasons, this is what I know. If there is no resurrection, then all of this falls apart. Everything we're doing here, Paul is ruthless. He's like, you might as well go home. There's no reason to come out. Please go home, people. This is done. And if you think about it, all they had to do, all they had to do to break the spring was to produce a body. Here's Jesus' body. We found him. Movement is over. And so sure, I know maybe they hid the body. Maybe you're wondering now, you know, I read verse 20. What's, pro what's Paul's proof that Jesus actually rose from the dead? You know, I mean, he says in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Okay, prove it. And earlier in chapter 15, he does. I'll just show this to you really quick here, okay? If you look earlier in 15, he says this. Verse 4, 15 verse 4, He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's proof number one. Proof number one is the Bible predicts Jesus' resurrection. If you look at the Old Testament, if you look hundreds of years before Christ, it's predicted. You can look at Psalm 16. He won't let His Holy One see decay. He won't abandon Him to the grave. You can look at Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has asked this really, really hard question, right? 
if if a woman has been married to a number of different men, when they die, who she married to in heaven? And Jesus is like, that's a dumb question. He says that this is the point. You know, there's neither marriage nor giving in marriage in heaven. But you don't get it. The Sadducees asked him that, by the way. They don't even believe in the resurrection. Because you don't get it. Um, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he said this. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Think about that. I am the, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. I am. If you like grammar, you'll love this. Jesus makes an argument for resurrection based on a present tense verb. That's it. I am. Am. There it is. Gotcha. He says, God is not the God of the dead. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was. I used to be. You know, they're done now. They're gone. No, no. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense verb. Gotcha. Feels done. You can go home now. You know, I mean, that, 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 that's what he does. Um, so there's scripture. According to the scriptures, Christ was raised from the dead. It was predicted. It happened. Uh, number two, um, where can we show this to you? This is verse five. After that, he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, as to one abnormally born. He's like, Paul's like, I'm kind of late to the show. It's kind of a, a late birth. Sorry about that, but I saw him. I saw him. And this is the second proof. Paul says, you can go find a person that saw him and talk to them yourself. There was 500 of them. Some of them are dead already, <clears throat> but you can find somebody that's not. Go find a person, ask them. You'll see they saw him unless you want to consider it was a mass delusion at different times and different places. They saw him. Our faith falls apart without the resurrection. But the good news is this, and I leave you with this. The good news is, our God is a resurrecting God. Our God is a resurrecting God. He's a God who brings new life. And if that's true then I can turn everything around that we just talked about this morning and it would also be true. Can we put the list up? If God is a resurrecting God, then Jesus is alive, then our salvation message is true, then our faith is powerful, it's effective, it changes us, then the apostles told us the truth, then we're free from the power of sin, then we have hope for life with Jesus after death, and then we are the most blessed people ever. To know this Jesus, that's the implication of this. You could turn all those things around because God is a resurrecting God. Hear me out now. As I read the text, I always think it's interesting. First Corinthians 15 is so interesting because, you know, in verse 12, the way he does it here, he says, um, sorry, 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. He like, he doesn't start with Jesus' resurrection. He starts with the principle of resurrection. You know, he, I, I, if I was writing First Corinthians 15, I'd start with the empty tomb, you know. I would be like, Jesus resurrected. Paul says, no, no, you don't understand. It even goes beyond that. To God is a resurrecting God. He brings new life. He, he, he brings spring out of the dead of winter, eventually. He, 
He brings new life to dead cells in your body. He brings children into the world. God is a resurrecting God. And I've got to believe He also brings new life to dead bodies, dead people. That, 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 that there's a day coming at the end of history where the dead will rise. And He will give us a new body, those that believe in Him. And Jesus just got His first. Jesus was just what we call the first fruits. That's what verse 20 says. He was first. We are to follow. God is a God of new life. He is a resurrecting God. That's who He is. That's what He does. What I want to do now then, perhaps the put an exclamation point on everything we've said today is I want to invite someone up to speak about this resurrecting God. Um, I've spoken with uh, Ruth about this and invited her forward. Um, she has an incredible story to tell about her, about, her, about her husband, about her cancer, and it is incredible. And I'm very excited for you to hear it this Easter Sunday. Am I, am I okay? I need to hold it closer. You don't hear anything, do you? My light's on. Different mic? Oh, that sounds good. One of them the size of a pea, but one the size of a golf ball. March was spent in seeing doctors, having a port put in, having biopsies, blood tests, and a PET scan done. The diagnosis, subcutaneous tumors of lymphoma. The specific diagnosis was diffuse large B-cell lymphomas, a very aggressive yet treatable kind of cancer. I was referred to Dr. Graham, an oncologist. Under a clinic for a short time as a visiting physician. The plan was to start chemo for six weeks. In mid-April, the day chemo was to start, we had 10 inches of snow and the car got stuck in the driveway. As a result, chemo was delayed for a couple of days. When we saw the doctor, he was convinced that the tumors were shrinking and that he decided not to treat at that time. I told Dr. Graham that people were praying for a miracle. When we asked what we were going to do next, his answer was, we'll keep watching and you keep praying. At our next appointment, some of the tumors continued to shrink while new one had begun. I told Dr. Graham that some people did not believe I had cancer. He was in fact emphatic. You do have cancer and it's a, an aggressive cancer. We asked what he thought about what was happening to my body. His best guess was my body was without treatment, was producing lymphocytes to fight the cancer. We asked if we, he had ever seen this before or if, uh, if he knew what could account for it. He answered no to both questions. It seemed Dr. Graham enjoyed watching the remarkable thing happening to my body as did I.
although we all felt cautious, I could only think one thing. God was doing something unusual that the doctors had never seen. Spontaneous remission was the term Dr. Graham used. A miracle is what I began to be convinced God was doing. I know that my body is not that smart. While watch and pray, while watch and pray were Dr. Graham's last words, he was careful with me. He ordered a biopsy of the new tumor. Once more, a delay because of scheduling difficulties. By the time the biopsy was to take place, there was no tumor to biopsy. The attending nurse and surgeon were the ones to be amazed this time. Clearly, something was happening in my body that these medical professionals have not seen. All summer, it seemed, God, without medical treatment for this aggressive cancer, was doing his work in my body. All was looking good for me. Then in July, a tumor appeared on Mike's neck. It was deemed inoperable. This was very difficult for us. Here, God was working in my body. That Mike's story looked like it was going to be different from my own. You can imagine how hard this would be. Mike's question, as he saw God clearly helping me, would God help him? At this time, I could see God doing another miracle. First, God helped Mike to feel his love for him. I think that Mike saw that love, God loved him very much, even though his story would be different from mine. He gave Mike the grace to accept that God was doing, to take, that God was going to take him home to heaven while his plan was for me to be healed of cancer and stay here. He soon began to call people to tell them he was going to heaven before them. Maybe he even called you. Recently, I read, sometimes the greatest miracle God does not in our circumstances, it's in our minds. God did do a miracle in Mike's mind and heart, and he did a miracle in my body. Both of us were recipients of amazing miracles of God's grace and power. In September, Dr. Graham left, and a new oncologist, Dr. Pula, came to the clinic. He was skeptical of my diagnosis. He had never seen anyone recover from this cancer without treatment. Given my diagnosis, he was perplexed that Dr. Graham did not treat me. A new tumor had appeared while the others were now gone. Another PET scan and more blood tests were ordered. October's PET scan showed diminished cancer activity and a biopsy was ordered on the new one remaining lump. Meanwhile, Mike began to be kind. What a mercy from God to lift our hearts worry over me so that we could give our energy to caring for Mike. What a blessing Julie, James, and Peter were to spend so much time with us. That meant the world to Mike and me. Though the days were hard and long waiting for Christ to come for Mike, God gave us some very precious time together. And Julie and I were able to be with Mike when he took his last breath there. Here, it was on November 17th that the Lord took Mike home to be with him. Julie, James, and Peter and I spent Christmas and Thanksgiving together. For me, December was spent in waiting for test results, as the Lord gave me much-needed rest. Well, I miss Mike. I have experienced God's peace in knowing that Mike is safely home in heaven where he wanted to be. I look forward to seeing him someday. 
how thankful I am that for what Jesus has done for us by dying on the cross for our sins so that we can know for sure where we are going after death. What peace and comfort come in trusting Christ to save us where we are going after death. What peace and comfort come to trusting Jesus to save us. My greatest comfort in this time was seeing Mike's trust in Jesus and the rock-solid assurance and joy knowing that he was in heaven. Let me tell you about my last appointment in January. The final results of a blood test indicated that my body, without medical treatment, had been effectively fighting not one but two cancers. The second one even more aggressive than the first. Dr. Pula is no longer more skeptical but thrilled. Neither he nor Dr. Graham have ever heard of a happening of this kind of cancer. It was really fun when he asked me to look at that last tumor and see it gone. His face lit up. He asked permission to write a paper including all the scientific facts about my case to give people. I told Dr. Poole I would become welcome his writing a paper if he included the most important fact of my case to me. People were praying for a miracle. Dr. Poole had no answer to account for what was happening to me, but I do. Yes, people were praying for a miracle, and God in his mercy chose to do a miracle in my body. He healed my body here on earth now, and Mike's new and healed body in heaven. For both healings, we thank him for his glory. For me, Dr. Graham, how I thank the Lord that in his kindness and mercy he brought this doctor for a short time, just for me, a doctor who would be sensitive to recognize God at work and have the courage to follow the lead of what God was doing. For these close to me, I feel like we have all lived the scene from the Bible when Jesus raised from the dead the son of widow name. Follow that miracle when Jesus, God's son, did what only God can do. The Bible says they all realized they were in a place of holy mystery, that God was working among them. They were greatly, quietly worshipful, and then noisily grateful, calling among themselves, God is back, looking to the needs of his people. The news of Jesus spread all through the country. I feel I, along with those around me, have been in a place of holy mystery. My prayer is for God to open the hearts of Dr. Poulos and others who have seen something happen in me that they have never seen before, to see our loving and powerful living God at work, and his personal love would flood their lives as he has ours. May you feel in a new way God's personal love for you and his power to help you as he is looking to your needs, whatever they are. What a holy mystery to belong to God was very much at work among us, and what joy to know he never left. He's always here. He has been for Mike and me what a year 2017 was. I had to share it with you. With much love from our great and loving Father and for Jesus Christ for you. And I've sent this to my friends and my family, and I just pray God uses it. And to know there's hope. There's a beautiful hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you.
Was it the last appointment that I heard that you showed the tumor that was gone and the doctor gasped? You know, I just, I just, incredible, incredible. Two different kinds of cancer and the body fighting against it. Um, thank you for writing that. It's beautiful. Thank you for speaking about your husband who God also brought home with him. And, and again, in each story we see God's grace and his mercy. God is a resurrecting God. And so it's true, if, if the resurrection did not happen, this whole thing falls apart. But if it did happen, then everything that we do, everything that we are, our lives, are all about Jesus Christ. Worship team, would you come up? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible testimony of your saving work, of causing a body to fight against cancer, and for taking Mike home safely to be with you. It's not that we understand your decision-making in all of these things, of you taking one home and keeping one here, but we don't second-guess you either. We trust you. And we know that you're a miracle-working God in both cases because we see your gracious power, your resurrection power working. And I thank you that I was able to see that firsthand. And that we were able to hear about one of your miracles. I pray that this story, as it goes out in medical journals, and as it's been told to family and friends, I pray that as the story is shared, that you would gain great glory from it. For you have done it. And you deserve all this glory. We thank you for the kind of God that you are. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.